Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Jessica Hockman, pediatrician and mom of three. On this podcast, I like to talk about various pediatric health topics, sharing my knowledge not only as a doctor, but also as a parent. Ultimately, my hope is that when it comes to your children's health, you feel more confident, worry less, and enjoy your parenting experience as much as possible. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Michael Silka, and he is a pediatric cardiologist and electrophysiologist. And we are going to talk about fainting, also referred to in the medical world as syncope. Fainting is fairly common, and when we see it, it's hard to know when syncope is worrisome and when it is not worrisome. So in this conversation, Dr. Silka will explain the most common reasons why syncope happens, what are reassuring signs, and how to know when fainting may be more serious. Dr. Silka currently practices at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, and I am so grateful to have Dr. Silka on as a guest today. He has quite an impressive resume. He's helped develop the guidelines for the use of pediatric implantable cardiac rhythm devices. He has published over 200 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, and he has served as the president of the Pediatric Electrophysiology Society. Hi, Dr. Silka. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Yes. Good morning, Jessica. I'm glad to be here. So tell me, you're a cardiologist. Can you tell my audience, where do you work and what kind of patients do you see? So uh, I'm a pediatric cardiologist. I specialize in electrophysiology. And so that's the the diagnosis and treatment of patients with uh, rhythm disorders of the heart. I also see patients with congenital heart disease, but my area of subspecialty is uh, patients who have uh, disorders of the heart rhythm. Basically, the heart beats too fast or too slow or is irregular to the point where it's creating symptoms. So I'm excited to talk to you today about fainting or what we say in the medical world, uh, syncope, because I think it's hard to tell what to do if somebody faints and how to respond. And I am excited to pass on some of your words of wisdom to my audience and let them know what to do should syncope arise, when to worry, when to see a doctor. So thank you so much for being here. Can we first talk about what is syncope? Why, what in general is it and why does it happen? Yeah, well, so we have to be clear about what fainting or syncope is. And that's usually... The first question I ask a parent or a patient when, when they say they passed out, what exactly happened? So syncope is really the abrupt, sudden, complete loss of consciousness where people fall to the ground. So they collapse, and they're usually unresponsive for a very brief period of time, and they wake up suddenly. So uh, syncope is not feeling dizzy or weak or lightheaded. And a lot of times people say, I'm, I'm fainting, I, I fainted. And you ask them specifically what happened. And it turns out they say they're lightheaded, or they're dizzy, or they're weak. And uh, uh, that that is not syncope. But the important thing to emphasize about syncope, or when, when somebody really faints, as far as we're concerned in medical field, is when there is complete loss of consciousness, and they're on the ground, basically, unresponsive. And it's something that they recover from spontaneously, usually within 5 to 10 seconds. If the event goes on more than 30 seconds, usually, it's if it's syncope, it's from a, a very important cause, a very serious cause, potentially. The important thing is, again, uh, is that it's a very temporary, brief, self-resolving, complete loss of consciousness. What, what are the causes of syncope? I know there are many causes. Can you explain the most common causes? Well are a lot of different causes of syncope. 
but the basic cause is insufficient blood flow to the brain. What controls basically how much blood flow goes to the brain is um, how fast the heart beating, what the heart rate is, and how effectively the heart is beating, how much blood is the heart able to pump. And usually with syncope, people talk about vagal syncope. Okay, so what does the vagal nerve do? The vagal nerve causes the heart rate to slow. When the vagal nerve has a very strong stimulus, what happens temporarily, the heart can stop beating or become very slow for 5 to 10 seconds. And also, the blood will, will tend to pool in the extremities if people are standing, so there's less blood returning to the heart, less blood to pump. And when there's, like I said, this results in insufficient cerebral blood flow, people fall to the ground. When they fall to the ground, the blood doesn't have to be pumped upwards to the heart. They're horizontal. There's increased blood flow, and the heart more effectively pumps blood to the brain. People wake up quickly. So that is the basic pathophysiology of syncope. And I think the important thing to remember is that it's insufficient blood flow. It's largely vagally mediated. And there are a few exceptions we can get to, but most people talk about vagal or vasovagal. This is what we're talking about. So a lot of parents, when I talk to them about about their child's syncope or after they have an event of fainting, their true concern is they want to make sure it's not heart involved or it's not cardiac involved. Can you give some broad things to look out for that would be reassuring that it's not cardiac? Yeah. Well, the first of all, what are the causes of syncope? So this is, you know, this is probably has been best studied in pediatric emergency rooms where, you know, and, and in those studies, it's basically about 75% is considered this kind of transient, vaguely or neurally mediated syncopal event. Okay. And about 15% of the time, it's not really clear what happened. And that leaves about 5 to 10% of the time. The other causes of syncope are either cardiac, neurologic, or psychogenic. Okay, so again, the odds are that the event just statistically is going to be a vaguely mediated, relatively benign event. Okay, but it scares the daylights out of people. There's no doubt about it um, when it does happen. What happens when we talk about cardiac causes of syncope people we we know there are athletes who are out in the football field training or you know exerting themselves on a basketball court who suddenly collapse so cardiac causes of syncope can be caused by the heart beating really too fast where the heart uh, is not able to pump blood effectively or having some form of basically heart block where all of a sudden the the heart doesn't pump blood effectively we worry about Syncope in people who are actually have syncope in the middle of exertion, if the guy's going up to the basket and has a layup and collapses right after that, we'd be very concerned about that. And this is where it gets tricky. There are people that pass out after exertion, like especially people who are on track who run a mile. After they run a mile, they're, they're totally exhausted. And you see these guys kind of, they're, they're all laying down on the track just beyond the finish line, kind of gasping. But anyways, people who pass out during exertion or the people we're most worried about. Um, somebody standing in line in the school cafeteria hasn't eaten all day, 
you know, gets nauseated, lightheaded, feel like they're going to throw up. They fall to the ground. The classmates surround them. They're, they're kind of awake in five seconds. They want to know what happened. That, that, that is not, that's not going to be a cardiac event. So the bad news is that syncope probably occurs in a quarter to a third of all children. As you get older, uh, it becomes more of a cardiac problem. But in, in young people, it's maybe 3%, 5%. The the general approach we have is that if an individual has non-exertional syncope and the EKG is normal, it's highly unlikely that there was a cardiac cause of syncope. I've also heard, you know, if you if the patient remembers fainting, if they remember the, you know, few minutes in the in the the time right before having the syncope episode versus totally blacking out. Um, if they have a memory of the event, that makes it more likely to be vasovagal rather than cardiac. You know, there is, with most benign vagal-mediated syncopal events, there is a prodrome where the patients usually feel hot or cold, and then they feel nauseated, and they feel a little bit dizzy. And the next thing, and usually they've been standing in line at school or something, at least for teenagers. That's almost the classic prodrome of passing out. Yeah. So yeah. And when we, that's, that's always reassuring to me, probably more so than the parent, but, uh, but, but that usually pushes me to think that this, this is benign, you know, cause of syncope. I also get a lot of kids that are standing in a hot shower for a long time that feel lightheaded or they're on the toilet for some time and they get lightheaded. And the other example I get all the time is a hot day at PE when they're standing around for too long, they may get lightheaded. Yep, are there any other all, examples that you can think of that you hear about commonly? Well, yeah, those are all classic vasodilation kind of scenario. It's it's just something people should be aware of, um, and and it's almost sometimes it's recurrent, and and people and so it's an important question to ask when you're evaluating a young patient. What were, you know, what, what was happening when she when he or she passed out? These are well, great that, examples. I think it really helps to know what to typically expect. So thank you. Mm-hmm. And and the other form of syncope that that really worries that I find concerning just because it's scary is the, the the breath holding spells that result in the child passing out. So there are sort of two variants. There's a, uh, a usually it's a pain related apneic episode where um, uh, a young child um, basically bumps his head or falls to the ground and. You know, basically, an inappropriate response is he or she hold their breath till to the point where they pass out. Sometimes they're pale and sometimes they're cyanotic. Um, I always take this a little bit more seriously because it partly just because it looks so dramatic and 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 I think the younger the patient, a very young patient having syncope is a pretty unusual event. And I think always in the back of my mind is this syncope or is this a seizure and the differentiation is not always that clear. So when a, when a young patient has an event like that, they're usually seen by both the cardiologist and the neurologist uh, to try to make sure we're not missing anything serious. When, one common example of syncope that I see a lot as a pediatrician who gives vaccinations is uh, situational syncope. So yeah. maybe could yeah. you describe and, some typical examples of situations that might make people feel lightheaded? Yeah, yeah. Well, the there's a lot of things that make people feel lightheaded, you know, and, and you said vaccination or, or blood draws. But the most common is somebody standing in line at school in the cafeteria. That 
of the patients I see with syncope, that is the number one occurrence. And a lot of people do get those sort of states of un non-responsiveness, but they're, they're not unconscious and they have stable vital signs. You know, it's important to try to differentiate what truly is syncope from sort of kind of a prolonged lapse of consciousness. Like I said, syncope is usually pretty brief. It's five to 10 seconds. And sometimes parents come in and say the child is unresponsive for five, 10 minutes or just sitting there kind of dazed. That, that's not syncope because, you know, you'd have, you could have neurologic impairment if you had cerebral hypoperfusion for that long of a period of time. Now, question for you. If, if you're somebody who knows that you tend to get lightheaded, what should a person do in that situation? Is there anything they can do to stop the actual syncopal event? Well, I, I think awareness of the prodrome of, you know, feeling lightheaded, dizzy, kind of nauseated is important. And I usually, usually tell the patient the worst thing that happens is you're going to fall and, you know, chip a tooth or hit your head, you know. So if a person is prone to those sorts of spells, you know, I, I try to tell them, look, try to, if you if you possible, sit down or lie down or brace yourself against the wall or ask somebody to help you stay up, right, or basically not fall abruptly. As far as aborting the, uh, such, uh, or, or making such an event stop, that is trickier. I think, you know, when people get nauseated, you just can't do something and make the nausea go away. It's, it's you know, so it's hard to abort and a syncopal, a, a vagal event once it starts. But what you can do is prevent it from resulting in any significant trauma. And, and, and there are patients that have recurrent syncope, and there are difficult management problems. We do emphasize hydration. Venous return, like I said, is one of the main causes. Sometimes compression socks, you know. I actually think that lower extremity exercises are probably one of the better homeopathic treatments for people prone to recurrent spells like this. Now, if you witness a syncopal episode, what should a bystander do? Yeah. So the first thing is, are there any, is the patient breathing? Is there a palpable pulse? You know, if there's not, you know, it's time to begin CPR and call for help. So if the patient's unresponsive and pale, and actually when patients pass out, they look like they're dead. I mean, but just very brief. They're, you know, especially if it goes on for five to 10 seconds because they're pale, you know, you put, you, you, know, you can't feel the pulse and they may start seizing. If the patient is unresponsive but has stable vital signs, that's very different. That's not a syncopal event because syncope is basically defined as basically, you know, absence of blood flow temporarily to the brain. The important thing is to see if the patient's breathing, if you can feel a pulse. And if the patient doesn't wake up in five to 10 seconds, then then definitely call for help. You know, I think it's a question of, is the patient having a seizure or not? One thing I also think about is sometimes I feel like the response people want to do, if they see somebody sort of wavering and about to fall down, they, they try to pick them back up or hold them up on their feet. But you, that that's uh, the opposite of what you want to do. You're, you are correct. Yeah. The, I mean, Holding them up in a way is good because it will prevent them from falling and hurting themselves. But holding them up for for extended periods of time may extend the period of hypo cerebral hypoperfusion. So I think the the thing is to prevent them from falling and kind of help them be seated on the ground or lay down if possible. Do you find drinking water makes a big difference in preventing syncopal episodes? Well, 
I, is hydration an important factor? Up to a point, yes. Um, and it's a question of hydration with what. I mean, I think free water probably is less likely to be helpful than electrolyte retaining solutions. I think the data the data is out there that you know children don't drink a lot of free water. I mean, I think if, you, if, it's, flavored, if it's flavored with something, they'll drink it. Yeah, you know. I mean, I, I've coached you know all ages of kids soccer, and I can tell you if you give them water bottles, it's you know if you put a little coloring in it or a little sweetener, they'll drink it. Yeah, so you know, electrolyte retaining containing solutions are probably the important thing for at least exercise induced dehydration. In my life, I can remember one time when I uh, passed out. And I always remember this because I was in medical school. And it was a time when we had to think about whether or not we were more interested in pursuing the medical route or the surgical route. You know, they said in medical school, that's the first decision you want to make. Do you like medicine? Or do you like surgery? And I remember I went into my first surgery. It was a, um, uh, a surgery for pancreatic cancer. And within a half an hour of standing there watching the surgery, I got really lightheaded and I had to sit down and I almost passed out on the surgical table. And I thought, well, there's my answer. I, uh, I don't think surgery is meant for me. <laughs> and then my second thought was, I hope I don't fail my surgery rotation yeah, for, yeah. for excusing myself. But I right. think it, I, I think you're right. Once you experience it, you know how, how uh, powerful the feeling is. Yeah. Now I have a question. You had mentioned that syncopal episodes typically are brief. I'm wondering, can you give general guidelines for parents when they should escalate care, when to call 911 or go to an emergency room? Yeah, um, that's, that's kind of a tough question. What, what usually happens in experience is that if it's a high school student who's been standing in line in the cafeteria and pass out, the school calls the parent to come pick their child up and take the child home, or I guess is what I would say. Yeah, I think if somebody passes out with exertion or immediately you know, after exertion, it's not clear what happened, especially if they pass out during exertion, probably either going to the emergency. If they if they pass out and they wake up, obviously, I think going to the emergency room is probably the best course of action. Calling 911, I think, is is if they aren't waking up, obviously, is, is when I would call 911. I think it's, you know, it's kind of like a seizure. When do you call an emergency? When do you call nine one one? When do you take a patient to the emergency room? And when do you when do you let it just self resolve and, and take care of it at home? I, I think the very young patient who has a syncopal event probably should be seen in an emergency room. Okay, and a lot of times the reason people go to the emergency room is not because of the syncopal event, but because they've had head trauma. They 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 had head laceration or they broke a couple teeth, things like that. And that's why the patients end up going to the emergency room. And sometimes, and this is another thing, there's an overlap between syncope and seizures. You know, in most patients who have syncope, they'll be flaccid and, and, and limp and pale and not moving. But sometimes there are patients when cerebral hypoperfusion can, can result in brain irritability and actually provoke a seizure also. And I'm curious from your perspective as a cardiologist, I realize you won't have exact numbers for this, but when somebody has a syncopal episode and they see you, how often of the time where it's cardiac is there, is there family history of cardiac issues as well? Yeah, I would say about two-thirds of the time there is some suspicion of a family uh, history. There are genetic disorders, disorders like long QT syndromes, 
and there are patients who have pulmonary hypertension that uh, it, tend, it can be a genetically inherited problem. And, and, you know, and that's one of the qu first questions we always ask when we see a patient for a syncope. Does anybody else in the family have a history of syncope? That is an important question to ask. I would say of the cardiac causes, and again, these are the minority of episodes, it's, you know, probably two-thirds of the time there's some sort of genetic, so far unrecognized heart disease, and syncope is the first manifestation of the problem. It's interesting because, you know, you want to be reassuring so much, so vast majority of the time, it is a benign, short-lived not worrisome issue, but you, you don't want to miss those times when they need to see you. Yeah. And, you know, and, and an there's been, uh, there's an interesting study, you know, that the AAP did looking at the utility of various tests in the evaluation of patient for syncope. And they uh, looked at lab work, EKGs, x-rays, and the two most worthwhile tests they found to get in the emergency room is one is an EKG, and the second is a pregnancy test on, on a teenage female. There you so go. So that may not be the first test you think of ordering. I would have thought maybe glu blood glucose, but that was, you know, they didn't, they didn't think labs had an incremental value on a patient who has a first-time syncopal event. But, uh, you know, people use their judgment in ordering tests. But nothing's going to be high yield, but there are probably – a hierarchy of, of tests that may be of some value in evaluating the syncopal patient. I agree with you wholeheartedly on, yeah. on, uh, <laughs> yeah. on those points. Absolutely. And then also an EKG is not invasive. I find yeah. it to be a very easy test to do. Why, why not if you're considering it? Yeah. It okay. So is there any, any final advice that you think parents would benefit from hearing from you before, before we sign off? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I think the important things for parents to know is that, uh, most passing out is relatively benign, okay? If the child feels lightheaded and dizzy and nauseated, it's important, I think, to prevent head trauma is probably the most important thing to do. Most patients who have a single passing out episode, two-thirds will not have any further recurrent events. You know, a lot of the people we see passed out are not yet driving, I always tell the families, when you apply for your driver's license, they're going to ask you if you ever passed out. You know, and, and I tell them you have to an, uh, answer it honestly. And I tell them if it's been over a, a six to eight week interval, it's probably not going to be a problem. You know, but just to be aware that the, the, that is something they will ask. They'll ask. They'll ask about impairment of consciousness. Is what they'll ask about. Have you ever ever been unresponsive for any reason? Yeah. No, that that makes a lot of sense. I I think I think it's an important point that you bring up. I was just thinking about it too. You know how you were saying the two most helpful tests uh, after a syncopal episode in the e ED would be an EKG and a pregnancy test. I also think uh, an alcohol level test would be helpful. Well, yeah, that uh, that or drug screen, but those are usually prolonged. You know, syncopal is very brief. You know, you know, uh, somebody who's drunk or on drugs, it's kind of you know, goes on for you know prolonged period of time. Good point. Very yeah. good point. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time. I feel so lucky and honored to have an electrophysiologist on the podcast. I know there's not that many of you out there. Well, several hundred. It used to be used to be 30. There are probably now 300. So I really appreciate your time. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. Also, if you could take a moment and leave a five-star review wherever it is you listen to podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it. It really makes a difference to help this podcast grow. 
You can also follow me on Instagram at Ask Dr. Jessica.